Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our Christmas series, A Vision for Christmas. So turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings his message entitled, Isaiah's Promise to a Sinful Nation. Have you ever wondered why it is that God is so amazingly merciful to sinning human beings? There are people who are going to wake tomorrow, and their very first words will be to curse the God who made them. And then God's gracious hand will give them breath for life of that day. The sun is going to rise on them. He will provide for them their daily bread. His hand is going to sustain them. He's going to cause their heart to keep on beating. That's going to happen even while those people will have no intention of ever acknowledging the God who treats them with such undeserved kindness. Take it one step further. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, please remember that in John's writings, the world is the place of rebellion against God. The world is the place of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The world is the place where men and women forget God and go their own way. But God so loved the world that in the fullness of time, he would send his only son to save men and women who certainly didn't deserve it. We've been discussing Isaiah's Christmas, and what I mean to say is that the passage we're discussing in Isaiah is the passage that New Testament writers quoted very frequently when describing the meaning of Christmas. So let's remember where we've been. Isaiah is born to a nation that has forgotten her God. Instead, they have taken to worshiping idols, which Isaiah has described as the work of human hands. They worship, says Isaiah, what their own hands have made. And that, of course, means they worship themselves, they worship their own creation, and they worship their own abilities. And as we've seen, things are going fairly well. But King Uzziah has just died, the righteous king, who has overseen a long period of prosperity in Judah. And there are dark clouds on the horizon clouds that threaten the future of the nation, the future of prosperity, and the future of their freedom. And up against that background, the great God of Israel appears to Isaiah. And to his horror, Isaiah realizes that both he and his nation is so much more sinful than he had ever imagined. And then very clearly, Isaiah is shown that the only hope for him and his nation is the grace of forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of mouth and heart. And from then on, Isaiah saw everything in that light. He'd been forgiven and cleansed, and that's what his nation needed as well. Now, all that happened in the year that King Uzziah died. That was 740 B.C. And by the time we get from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 7, years have now passed. It's now sometime around 732 B.C., and in the intervening years, the world has been changing rapidly. I mean, for one, because Uzziah had been sick, His son Jotham had been reigning with him. It was a a co-regency. And then after Uzziah's death, Jotham basically carried on with his father's policies. But then Jotham died. He didn't live that long, and his son Ahaz became king in his place. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he was a remarkably wicked man. He filled Judah with idols and even sacrificed his own son in the fire to a foreign god. And so the nation of Judah had made a hard turn toward ever-increasing evil. But other things were happening as well. By now, the Assyrian Empire didn't just feel like a distant threat. It was becoming an immediate threat. Assyria was starting to overtake and destroy one nation after another, and there was a genuine feeling of panic in the air. 
And that's the background at the beginning of Isaiah 7. Let's read the first verse. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, there's a great deal of explanation that's required. 200 years earlier, the nation of Israel had divided, and it had formed into two different nations. Israel was the nation to the north. It was kind of like North and South Korea. Judah is the nation to the south. That's the nation where Isaiah lived and the nation where Jerusalem was located. It was also the nation that had the son of David on the throne. And finally, and this is so important, God had promised that the Messiah would arise from the kingdom of David. And so Judah is the nation that had the promise of a savior. Well, very good. During the days when wicked King Ahaz was the king in Jerusalem, the king of Assyria was rising in power and every single country was panicking. And so nations were in danger of imminent invasion and utter destruction, and they were trying to figure out how to survive the threat. Now, please pay attention because if you don't hear what I'm about to say now, nothing's going to make sense. Think of the Assyrians as coming from Iraq. Think then of Syrians. Yeah, there were Assyrians and there were Syrians. The Syrians were trying to build an alliance of nations, and they thought that the alliance should include Syria, Israel, and Judah. They were all there in a row from north to south, and if they aligned with one another, well, Assyria wouldn't be able to pick them off one at a time. Instead, if they integrated their resources and their military might, well, they might just stand a chance to resist. But resistance would require that all three of them would be in step with each other. But King Ahaz of Judah wasn't interested in joining this alliance. You know, I mean, perhaps he thought that even combining the three nations, that wasn't strong enough. And as we're going to see, he also genuinely despised both the Syrians and the Israelites. But he also had another plan. It was a plan of entering into his own private and independent deal with the king of Assyria. We're going to talk about that much more in the future. But then something happened. The Syrians were upset that Judah wasn't forming an alliance. And 2 Chronicles 28 verse 5 tells us they attacked and that King Ahaz lost a battle to the Syrians and the Syrians had taken many of the men of Judah as captives of war. Then 2 Chronicles 28 verse 6 tells us there was a second battle. The Israelites also engaged in battle against Judah. You see, it was a coordinated attack. And on that occasion, Judah lost 120,000 people in battle. It was a catastrophe. Clearly, Judah was outmatched both by the Syrians and the Israelites. And then the dreaded thing happened. The Syrians and the Israelites, who had already joined forces, now were in the process of forming a great army, assembled and preparing to march against Jerusalem. They would besiege the city, and they thought they'd be able to breach its walls. They'd already decided that when they succeeded, they would kill King Ahaz and they would put a puppet king on the throne in Jerusalem. And all of that is the drama of Isaiah 7. But of course, we already know from Isaiah 6, there was an ultimate reality. It's that Yahweh, the Lord God, is on the ultimate throne and he controls all things. And that, of course, means that if Ahaz, the king of Judah, needed to be saved, and he did, well, the only thing that he should do is call upon the king who was infinitely above all other kings. He should call upon the one who sat on the eternal throne. 
And then getting back to Isaiah 7, verse 1, amazingly, we read that the two kings, Rezin, he's the king of Syria, and Pekah, he's the king of Israel, well, they joined forces to attack Jerusalem, but they could not, for whatever reason, mount the attack. Well, that would mean that the allied armies had some kind of a snag. They had to work it out before they could coordinate their attack. It seems like Ahaz was given some additional time in which he could get ready for battle. So that was good for him. Now, that's the drama. Isaiah is in the city of Jerusalem, and he knows that soldiers are coming from two nations to the north, and those soldiers are determined to conquer the city of Jerusalem. It was a day of darkness. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 2. Isaiah 7, verse 2 reads, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That is to say, before the siege of Jerusalem actually began, the house of David, that is the royal house of King Ahaz, was being told that the alliance had been formed and that indeed they were coming. And King Ahaz, the wicked king of Jerusalem, panicked. He had already lost two battles to those boys. What chance did he now have? There was a reason for him to panic. You know, evil days tell us much about who we are, and they tell us a lot about the nature of our faith. Our reaction in times of trouble is a statement about what we truly believe. And you see, when things are going well, well, Ahaz had no fear of God. No fear of anything. Why should he? But now he's shaking like a tree in the wind. Men are coming, and maybe they want to kill him. His faith has been in his circumstances and in his own abilities. So many people are just like that. When things go well, well, they're just great. And when things go badly, they start to shake. They fear. But the godly, well, they have a different reaction entirely. When they face evil days, they trust in their God. But what gives them that kind of a trust? Well, that's what this story is all about. This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season, a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. Well, December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead. Your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st. Your gift among other committed ministry partners across Canada will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. Please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. We come now to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So the king of Judah is out inspecting the city's water supply. He's preparing for the coming invasion. He's thinking of strengthening his fortifications. He's thinking about a lengthy siege. 
When water is going to become precious, he's thinking about how to survive. And as he does that, Isaiah the prophet arrives. He has his son with him, and the two of them walk up to the king's royal regiment. The prophet of God has something to say in desperate times. What's he going to say? It's clear to me that the location of the meeting between Ahaz and Isaiah is significant. Ahaz seems to be checking out the water supply. Will the city maintain the siege? What can I do? And as he's checking out his reinforcements, along comes the great prophet, the preacher Isaiah. And he's got his boy with him. The preacher has called him Shear Jeshuv. His name means a remnant will return. You know, in our day, that would be like calling your son, the phoenix will rise from the ashes. I mean, that's good, that's hopeful, except, I mean, you have to be reduced to ashes before the phoenix rises. See, that's bad news. Here comes that prophet with his snotty-nosed little kid telling us we're going down, and Ahaz hated this guy. Perpetual bad news, always condemning. He's the last person the king needs to see now. And now, and you have to imagine Ahaz thinking, I mean, what's he going to say? Will he say, this is what happens when you rely on idols rather than relying on God? Will he say, now is the day of divine retribution? Will he say, you've got this coming. You have no chance against these two kings when they arrive. Whatever the prophet says, clearly Ahaz doesn't want to hear it, at least not now. But then instead of bad news and condemnation, surprisingly, Isaiah tells Ahaz, don't you be afraid. These two kings will not defeat you. Indeed, within 65 years, the nation of Israel with its capital in Ephraim, that nation that you fear right now, it won't even exist anymore. And that happened. About a dozen years later, the Assyrian Empire destroyed Israel. And within 65 years, Israel's land had been so settled by foreigners and they were dispersed that they ceased to exist as a nation to this day. Those tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel, are they're just gone. But God also knew that that wouldn't help Ahaz today. Ahaz might have said, well, you know, 65 years, that, that's a long way off. This is now. I need more than that, if I'm going to be encouraged at least. It's possible to take the crisis Ahaz was facing and apply that to our days. All have sinned, says the Bible. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And and because this is what the Bible says, many people feel that the only thing that God would ever communicate to them are words of condemnation. And I'm tired of hearing about my sins. But as we remember from John 3:16, God so loved the world. Let's get back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah the prophet has something to say to King Ahaz because God has told him to say something. And so while the king of Judah is fortifying the city, Isaiah speaks. I'm reading Isaiah 7, verse 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. That's shocking. The prophet of God is telling a wicked king in his wicked nation, don't you be afraid. And furthermore, he's calling the kings of Syria and Israel two smoldering stumps of firebrands. It's like calling them two burnout cigarette butts. They're spent forces. Their best days are behind them, and they're now reduced to all talk and no action. I say this is surprising because, given the situation, they don't look like burnt out cigarette butts. So is Isaiah simply underestimating the threat that this alliance poses? Well, let's keep reading verses 5 and 6. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go out against Judah and terrify it. 
Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Now, Isaiah has understood the situation perfectly. And by the way, up to this point, we don't know how much King Ahaz has understood of the situation. This might be the first time that he actually heard the strategy that these two kings had planned. The king of Syria, remember, his name is King Rezin, and the king of Israel also, here he's called the king of Ephraim. He is also called the, the son of Ramalia. And that's because King Pekah of Israel was the son of Ramalia. It's as simple as that. But Ahaz might not have known that these two kings had already chosen their own puppet king, a man who is called the son of Tabil. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about a man named Tabil or about his son, but he was a Syrian. But why this man? Well, we don't know. But we do know that whoever this man was, he must have been a man who was easy to manipulate. He would have made a great puppet king who did whatever those other two kings told him to do. And so the plan was all set. And Isaiah, being a prophet, knew only too well how great a threat this was. And yet, in spite of the fact that he understood the threat, Isaiah was still prepared to call these two kings a couple of burnt-out cigarette butts. And then speaking of this conspiracy that was devised against King Ahaz of Judah, Isaiah then adds, and, you know, this must have been breathtaking. He says, verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Let's take it one step at a time. The words, this is what the Lord God says, well, it literally, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Isaiah, on a number of occasions, says things very much like that. That is, the words, thus says the Lord God, always are said in preparation for something vital. It's very important. It's it's as if Isaiah is saying, listen up, you pay close attention, because what I have to say to you now comes directly from the mouth of God himself. But notice also that Isaiah is drawing attention to the fact that the God who now speaks is Yahweh. He's not the idolatrous gods that have become so commonplace around Jerusalem. But this is also important because the name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. You see, what Isaiah knew and what we should remember is that God had made special promises to Israel, his people. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, God makes a promise to King David. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. That's to say, the worldwide kingdom of God is going to be established from the line of David, from the throne in Jerusalem, or to put it another way, the Messiah who will save his people from their sins And the one who will rule the nations comes from your very throne, King Ahaz. Did you know that? That's why, for instance, the New Testament begins by demonstrating that Jesus is the direct descendant of David. Only the son of David can become the Messiah. And if we think about it, what Isaiah is now saying to King Ahaz, it's really quite profound. Listen, Ahaz, the reason these men are not going to succeed has nothing to do with you personally. I see you strengthening your fortification, and I guess that's good, but that's not going to save you. God is going to save you, but why is he going to do that? See, what this passage is all about is the reason that God is going to save has nothing to do with Ahaz personally. He's a wicked man, and he deserves judgment. But God has made a covenant with David, and when God makes a covenant, 
God keeps it. That's it. Stop and think about how important that is for all of us. If you ask God to save you and think, well, maybe God's going to do it because he knows I've tried my best. If that's what you think, you're barking up the wrong tree. Or if you think God might have mercy on you because you've pled your case in a convincing way, you're wrong again. The only reason God saves is because he has made an agreement through the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a promise God made to the world that he promised to send one to crush the head of the serpent. And it's the promise God made when he promised that the earth would be filled with his glory. So Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says to him, Ahaz, you're going to survive for but one reason. I have made a covenant with David, your father, and you stand in that line. See, that's what we need to hear. That's what all of us need to understand. If you are to receive salvation, it can only come through the promise that God made in the Messiah. The Christmas story is so important because it's the only ground upon which forgiveness, mercy, and salvation can be found. If we don't find it there, we're all lost. We're all going to be crushed. There is no hope for us. But if the promise is true, we can be saved. John, I think there's an interesting contrast here because we see Ahaz and his, in essence, salvation, but we also recognize that as, as God's promise. It's a result of God's promise. And, and our salvation is as a result of and only of God's promise. Yeah, that's a great point. Ben, I think we want to make it very clear that what we're saying is that Ahaz is saved from the two kings that wanted to murder him, and he is saved only in that sense. I mean, he never actually turned to the Lord. Uh, But, you know, it does make the point for us. We are saved from wrath, not because of our righteousness or something that commends ourselves to God. We're saved because God has made promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas reminds us that God has made promises to those who would repent and believe in him, and we are saved from the wrath to come because of the promise that God has made. God binds himself to his promises, and God is not moved by our supposed righteousness. And that is the beauty of Christmas. God has made promises, and he always keeps them. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.